You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first lesson comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 21, which you can find on page 981 of your pew Bible. And as we love to say each week, if you do not have a Bible of your own, please bring one home with you after the service. We would love to make that a gift to you. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The word of the Lord. Would you please stand with me for the reading of the gospel? Our gospel lesson comes to us from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Dear friends, this is the holy gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than of your whole body to go into hell. Friends, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once again, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, welcome to Redeemer. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet and don't know each other, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. 
Now, by way of orientation, we are in the midst of an Epiphany sermon series on identity, and we're calling the series Practicing the New Self. And through it, we are learning that the gospel of Jesus gives us an identity that is more stable and secure, healthy and true than any other form of identity that you can get inside or outside yourself. You know, you and I live in this age where the question, who am I, is this question that burns almost more fiercely than, than nearly any, any other question that people are asking. It's in the hearts of so many people. Maybe that's a question you brought with you this morning. And so here's what we're talking about. Over the past two weeks, just to catch you up, we've talked about how you are not what you do and you are not your body image. And over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about how you are not how much money you make. You are not your, your reputation and you are not your own. But today, this week, we're talking about how you are not your sexual appetite. You are not your sexual appetite. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So sermons about sexuality are risky. Are they not? <laughs> That's nervous laughter I hear out there. People are like, <laughs> I wish I didn't come today. We might, you know, we, we come to church in order, why do we come to church? We come in order to grow in prayer, to grow in closeness to God, to le learn more about the Bible, develop healthier habits. But does anybody go to church to have their mind changed about sexuality? Now, I think most people go to church and choose their church based upon whether or not it fits what they already believe about sexuality, right? Most of us come to church to have our sexual beliefs and our sexual practices confirmed, not challenged. But that makes it, it, makes it kind of hard to grow, right? Our sexuality is one of the most important and powerful aspects of our humanity. And if we're going to grow in the way that we understand and practice our sexuality, then we're going to occasionally need a bit of a gentle challenge. And so I just ask you right now, don't answer out loud, but just think about it or maybe even jot it down if you like. What are you afraid I'm going to say? Because when, you, when a pastor gets up to preach on sexuality, everybody's a little bit nervous. What's he going to say? Is he going to say something that's going to make you feel like Redeemer can't be home anymore? Right? Isn't that what's at stake here? Isn't that what's on the table? Let's ease the tension in the room for a minute. No matter who you are or what kind of lifestyle you have lived up until this moment, we are so very glad that you're here. Every single one of us in this room is a sexual being, and that's a good thing. Your sexuality is a gift from God. None of us have used this gift perfectly, right? And so all of us need to grow and change in the way that we think about and feel and express our sexual appetites. Here's another question. Why is sexuality so powerful in relation to identity? Well, think about it. Sexuality is the convergence, the meeting of your inner affections and desires and longings and lusts with physical actions. Sexuality is both something that lives in your inner thoughts and feelings, and it's something that's also expressed in your outer actions. Sexuality requires vulnerability, both internal vulnerability and sharing your desires, sharing kind of your, your innermost thoughts with somebody else. But it also requires an external vulnerability in the removing of clothing and bringing your naked body to another person's naked body. Theologian Frederick Buechner described it this way. He writes, the desire to know another person's nakedness is really the desire to know and be known, 
not just sexually, but as a total human being. It's the desire for a relationship where each gives, not just of one's own body, but of one's whole self, body and spirit both, for the other person's gladness. And for this reason, sexuality is not only bound up in the practice of community and belonging, sexuality is bound up in identity. Your sexuality really can feel like one of the truest and most authentic parts of who you are. Sexuality is, in a sense, to use a theological word, sacramental. It's an outer physical embodiment of an inner spiritual desire. And listen, the Bible tells this incredibly beautiful but heartbreaking and yet redemptive story about human sexuality. It begins in creation, in the book of Genesis. Sexual appetite is instilled in human beings and it's called good. When the first two humans meet each other, the man exclaims out poetically, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, our bodies are made for each other. It's erotic poetry. The first human speaks, it's erotic poetry. That tells us something, right? And later the text reads, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Sex is not peripheral to marriage. It is the embodiment of marital unity. And the Song of Songs, Song of Songs are sometimes called the Song of Solomon. That book right there in the middle of the Bible is a celebration of sexual appetite. If you think the Bible and the Christian faith is prudish and restrictive and repressive of sexuality, you're just uninformed. There's more. There's maybe parts you just haven't explored yet and don't know about. You may be underestimating the Christian faith in this particular area. Now, that's all in creation, but then in what the Bible describes as the fall into sin, sexual appetite itself gets broken. Nakedness is experienced as shameful. Sex becomes a form of either indulgence or power and dominance, and our appetites begin to have a kind of control over us. Rather than appetite being just one thing that you feel and manage, appetite becomes the thing that rules you. It drives you and drives your life. However, the redemption that Jesus brings in the biblical story tells us that sexual appetite is not permanently broken. It can be redeemed. And one of the most significant journeys in your life, beginning with puberty and adolescence, is learning how to think and feel and practice sexuality in a way that honors God and honors others and honors even yourself. And the fulfillment of sexual appetite is the intimacy consummated at the end of the biblical story in the wedding feast of Christ, the groom, and his church, the bride. This is, let's admit, a great mystery. God and his people begin their relationship in the simplicity of a garden, but it's fulfilled in the complexity of a marriage celebration in a city, the New Jerusalem. And so listen, if you can, let's summarize this. The beginning and middle and end of the biblical story have so much to teach us about the purpose and nature of human sexuality and of sexual appetite. And our text this morning, Philippians chapter three, is right there in the middle of that story. Now, as you listen to this being read earlier, I wonder if you noticed, is this text only about sexuality? No, of course not. It's about many things. But it is about sexual appetite, and it is absolutely a text that is rooted in identity. It's an identity text. And it's about how there are two paths when it comes to identity and appetite, either ruling or being ruled by your appetites, okay? And that's the dichotomy that we're going to explore this morning, to rule your appetite or to be ruled by your appetite. 
Let's take a look. You might find it helpful to have the text in front of you. So if you like, you can open back up to Philippians chapter three. If you don't want to, that's fine. Just, just listen as I read. Not that I have already obtained this. Stop. What's the this? <laughs> if you look a few verses back in the text, this is the resurrection from the dead. The apostle Paul is writing. He's talking about eternal salvation, the resurrection that, await, that awaits for him. And here's what he describes. He says, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it, what's the it? Resurrection from the dead, my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it, resurrection from the dead, my own. What's going on? The Apostle Paul is writing to a new church in Philippi, a church plant, if you will, in Philippi in the first century. And he's describing a fundamental dynamic in the Christian faith, which is, Faith that God will raise you from the dead and give you eternal life. If you spent time in church or around Christians over the years, this is familiar territory. You recognize this. Christians talk about this kind of thing all the time. He's being very literal here. He's saying, obviously, I don't have this yet. I'm still alive, right? I haven't died and been raised yet. And so I'm seeking it. I press on to make it my own. And then he gives the rationale, the why and the how. He says, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's some identity language. He's saying, I belong to God. And so he's making this connection between identity and the resurrection. And then he goes on to unpack it further. He writes, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in God in Jesus Christ. Let those of us who are mature think this way. I love it when Paul gets a little bit sarcastic in his writing, right? Just throw in a little, just a little left jab in there, right? Like if you're reading and you're tracking with them, he's just going to throw that in there and say, by the way, if you're sharp, we agree, right? I love to define maturity as what I think, right? Do you like to do that? I like to do that too. He writes, God, if, if you think otherwise, then God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. What's he describing? He's saying, I'm leaving my old life behind. Paul elsewhere in other letters in the New Testament, he calls this the old self. He's saying, I'm leaving the old self, the old life behind. I'm moving forward. Just as a little side note, if you want to know why the idea of progress is fundamental to Western civilization, here it is. So many cultures and societies, especially Eastern ones, believe the nature of reality to be cyclical, moving in a circle. You never make progress. You just go around and around. It is a uniquely Christian contribution to conceive of the universe as having a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that you can make progress through the story. It's interesting that Paul calls this posture maturity. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way, forgetting what's behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, earlier in the same letter, just a few verses earlier, the Apostle Paul talks a lot about his past. So I don't think he means literal amnesia, forgetting the past. Rather, he means not being defined by the past. And this, again, is a uniquely Christian contribution. Nothing we've said thus far is surprising to anybody, no matter what you believe. The idea of progress and the idea of not being defined by your past, we take that for granted. And just what I want to excavate for you, just here really briefly in just a few seconds, is to show you that this idea that we all take for granted actually comes from the Christian faith. 
that you can make progress and that you're not defined by your past. Now, his idea is that your present identity can be different from your past identity. And that this, again, is a uniquely Christian contribution. In a first century context, listen, you are your past. You are your race, your ethnicity, your heritage, your family, your class. It was an outrageous thing to say at this time in history, forgetting what lies behind. Like, forget your past, you are your past. Now, next he gives a warning, and I'm going to skip the warning, and then we're going to circle back to it and actually spend a lot of time with it. But for now, let's let the Apostle Paul finish his thought. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, that by the power that enables him to even, even to subject all things to himself. That word citizenship, it's an identity word. It's who you are. It's where you belong. So he closes where he began, identity and the resurrection. Let's just summarize here. This is a very hopeful little passage. In fact, the whole book of Philippians is tremendously encouraging. If 2024 is off to a rough start and you just the, the bleakness and the cold and the dreariness of January is just making your soul wither, go read Philippians. Philippians is the book of joy. It's an encouragement. This is a hopeful little passage. Jesus offers identity by making you his own by faith. He offers you citizenship in his kingdom. He does this by promising you resurrection after death and eternal life. And so, here's the hinge, the posture of your whole life is leaning forward towards this, seeking it, straining for it, pressing onward towards it. Your life is meant to lean forward to meet your glorious future. And so... Here's the implication. The appetites in this life are subject to this posture. You're to have full control and mastery over your physical and bodily appetites, food and sex and sleep and drink. And it makes sense. Once you know your future, then you start shaping your present around it. And you and I already do this in so many different ways. If you're going to go on a trip to Italy over spring break, you're going to start listening to podcasts and use apps to learn Italian a little bit ahead of time right now so you can navigate your way around. If you sign up to run the Monument 10K, you're going to start eating and exercising differently now. If you're engaged, then you start orienting your bank account, your furniture, your address, your calendar. Everything begins to orient around that future marriage. And if you're pregnant for the first time, your whole world gets flipped upside down and you start kind of orienting everything in your life around this future baby. If your eternity is a resurrected life with God, then all of the desires and hopes and appetites in the present become subservient to it. Your new identity controls your appetite, right? Now, the challenge for us is that we live in a time when our identity and our appetites have merged and become one. And we struggle to tell the difference between who I am and what I want right now. In 2016, the New York Times published an article titled Prince's Holy Lust. And it went public shortly after the pop icon Prince passed away. Uh, and Prince is quoted as, as saying this, quote, the love of God and the sexual urges we feel are one and the same. The urge itself is a holy urge. In other words, in other words the, the sexual appetite 
really is God. If you want to know what God feels like, he's your sexual appetite. It is your sexual appetite, according to Prince. And Prince was really not the first one to think this or to say this. Many of the Greek cults in the first century when the book of Philippians was written, involved temple prostitution. If you want to worship Aphrodite, you pay a small fee, you have sex with a temple prostitute, either male or female, and then the sex act is considered a worship act. That's the cultural context into which the Apostle Paul is writing, not just the book of Philippians, but most of his New Testament letters. And then for this, this is the context, for this reason, here's the warning that he gives. For many of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That phrase, their God is their belly. We're going to stop and camp out on that for just a few minutes. Belly in this context is not your physical stomach that digests food or just your general midsection. It's a symbol of appetite. Paul might as well have said their cravings and hungers and longings and desires are their God. In other words, they deify what they want. Now, to be clear, the apostle is not shaming or condemning anyone who just wishes they had more self-control, who just wishes they had better self-discipline and feels that temptation has like, ah, got the better of them again. He's not condemning or shaming that person. So to the person who is struggling with a pornography addiction, Or to the person who, back in December, had too much to drink at the office Christmas party and is now terribly embarrassed that they were hitting on their coworker. Or to the dating couple that this past week went just a little too far physically and is now feeling really guilty. The words of scripture to those people are a gentle invitation to repent and to be forgiven and to be free. No, but those are not the people the apostle is describing. Rather, he's speaking to those who have deified their sexual appetite. It's become their source of identity. And what ought to be embarrassing or shameful is now celebrated. And lest you think at this moment that the apostle or the Bible or Jesus or me is slamming these people with righteous rage, the words of the text are, I tell you, even with tears... You see, when someone idolizes their sexual desires so much that it becomes their identity, it's actually a tragedy. It's worthy of lament. And this is true no matter who you are, because there's a lot of forms this could take. This is true if it's a husband who views his identity in the marriage as one of sexual privilege and dominance. This is true if you're a wife who views her identity in the marriage as one of sexual temptress. This is true if you're a young adult who feels same-sex attraction and so takes on the word gay as an identity label. This is true if you're a girl who feels confused and disoriented about her newly developing sexual desires and so adopts the word bi or bisexual as an identity. This is true if you're a deeply conservative person who feels that their heterosexual appetites make them inherently more righteous than those who have homosexual appetites. We could keep going with example after example. There are conservative and progressive, heterosexual, homosexual, cisgender, gay, bisexual, and so many other ways of making sexual appetite your identity. You know, one of the most frequent questions that I am asked as a priest is, is Redeemer open and affirming? I cannot, like, 
hundreds of times over the past seven years I've been asked this question. I get asked this question in emails. I get asked this question by baristas in coffee shops when they see the clergy collar. I get asked this by friends who are gay. This is always a difficult question to answer for a couple of reasons. First, at just like first blush, there's the grammar of the question. Is Redeemer open? The door's unlocked, the lights are on. Yes, like we are open, right? Are you affirming? Affirming of who? Human beings? Yes, absolutely. We affirm the dignity and value of all human beings, full stop. But that's not what people normally mean when they ask this question. What they mean usually is, do you affirm the goodness of practicing a homosexual, queer, trans, LGBTQ, plus, et cetera, identity and lifestyle? And so to that question, we would want to begin by affirming the dignity and value of anyone who practices any form of identity or lifestyle. But we would not affirm the health or goodness of these identities and lifestyles. We would say that Jesus has something better to offer and in the long run, something that will lead to a deeper joy. And the comeback to these kind of conversations usually goes something like, why does the church always overstep its bounds? Why does the church feel the need to get all up in people's personal and private business? Get the church out of the bedroom and back into the sanctuary or the prayer group or the Bible study where it belongs. If consenting adults are enjoying expressing their sexual appetites in ways that don't harm other people or limit other people's freedom, then why would the church care? Have you wondered this? If you have wondered this, good morning. Welcome to Redeemer. (laughs) I hope you stay, truly. If you have not wondered this, then it would be good for you to know that many of your friends and neighbors and coworkers and classmates are actively wondering about this and are questioning it. It's a live question. It's not hypothetical. There's a lot at stake here. And so we take this question to the gospel text in the gospel of Matthew chapter five. In it, Jesus is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon, and he gets to a section that relates to sexual appetite. And he begins with this first century rabbinic turn of phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And it's just good to remember, Jesus was not the only rabbi wandering around the Mediterranean in the first century. He was not the only rabbi that used this turn of phrase. When a rabbi in the first century said, you have heard it said, what he's cueing his audience is, I'm about to quote from the Old Testament. And then when he says, but I say to you, he's about to give his interpretation of whatever he has just quoted. So Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus is talking about sexual appetite. And in response to the teaching of Jesus, people usually go one of two very different ways. So here, are the, if you fall into these categories, congratulations, you're normal. Category number one, you hear this kind of teaching from Jesus and you go, that's impossible. It's unrealistic. Jesus is asking me to like, just not have sexual thoughts at all. Can't do that. And so the impossibility of this causes you to take a step back from Jesus, maybe of everything that Jesus taught and said and did, maybe a step back from the church, maybe a step back from Christianity as a whole. It's unrealistic, it's impossible. The other way to go would be to actually believe the teaching of Jesus, but to be crushed by it. I'm terrible. Shame and guilt and depression, because you do have a lot of sexual thoughts and you just feel awful about them, right? 
Now, it's worth asking, what is Jesus really saying? It's important to make a very clear distinction between what we might call the first look or the first observation of another human being's desirability and physical beauty and attractiveness. That's the first look, and it's one that you can't control. You will, in the course of a normal day or a normal week, encounter other human beings who are beautiful, who are attractive, who are sexually desirable. And that in and of itself is not a sin and it is not wrong and it need not induce feelings of shame and guilt. To feel temptation, even sexual temptation, that in and of itself is not a sin. Jesus was tempted. Now he did not give into it, right? And we'll talk about that next. But to experience temptation in itself is not a sin. Now, what this is talking about, what Jesus is saying is the kind of look that gazes and then lingers. The kind of looking that then begins to feed your own appetite. Philosopher Dallas Willard interprets it this way. He says, looking to desire, looking in order to desire, looking at someone other than a spouse in order to indulge a sexual fantasy. We desire to desire. We indulge and cultivate desiring because we enjoy fantasizing about sex with the one seen. Desiring sex is the purpose for which we are looking. Do you understand the difference? These are not just words. This is actually the difference between a whole different kind of world happening inside of you. You cannot control the first look, the observation, the noticing of an attractive person, but you can control what your eyes and your imagination do next. Martin Luther, the reformer uh, from the 15th century, puts it this way. He writes, I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can keep it from making a nest in my hair. <laughs> and that's just a really lovely kind of silly way of describing the difference between what you can and cannot control. Sexual thoughts will fly through your head, but you can keep them from making, from embedding and for making a nest there, right? The distinction is crucial. Jesus is not commanding us not to have a sexual appetite. Jesus is telling us not to feed our sexual appetite with anyone who is not our spouse. To have a sexual appetite is to experience temptation on the regular. To indulge temptation is to allow your appetite to rule over you. And what rules over you is your God, which is why the Apostle Paul later is saying, their belly is their God. You see, when your sexual desires become your functional God, then your identity becomes terribly fragile. It's fragile because sexual desires and appetites change. They just do. They don't stay the same. They're malleable. They evolve over time. Sexual appetite is always incredibly strong in the present. In the present, it feels like the only thing. But over time, it's incredibly weak. It's unstable. And so if you claim a sexual identity, you know what you'll end up having to do? You will need things to prop that identity up because it's not strong enough to stand on its own. So you'll go to everyone you'll know and you will need require them to affirm your sexual identity, to prop it up, to encourage and support you in your sexual identity because by itself it can't stand. It's too weak. And what's more, sexual appetites, if fed on a diet of sexual indulgences and, and encounters, will over time expand and mutate in unexpected ways. A good therapist I know likes to warn his clients, as you grow older, you will need spicier food and stronger pornography. It's a graphically disturbing way of saying, if you allow your appetites to rule you, 
they will take you places you never wanted to go. If you allow your appetites to run your life, you may, you may be someone who likes the teachings of Jesus. You may be someone who admires Jesus, who actually feels a lot of warm, friendly affection for Jesus. But there's one part of Jesus' life that you'll never really understand and you kind of wish wasn't part of the story and you'll sort of avoid books or teachings or sermons or anything that has to do with the cross. Which is why the Apostle Paul, in his little warning here, describes these kind of people who have their belly as their God, their appetites as their God. He describes them as enemies of Jesus. No, not enemies of Jesus. Enemies of the cross of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, the cross was the sacrificial death of Jesus for the sins of the world, where the sins of the world are put to death and death itself is conquered. The cross says inherently that sin requires punishment and judgment and sacrifice cross is so deeply offensive. And so the cross hits different people in different ways. If you do not believe you are sexually broken, if you've you've allowed your appetites to rule over you and you've claimed those appetites as a form of sexual identity, then the cross is only bad news. It's only offensive. There's nothing good about it. And yet, if you are someone who knows they are sexually broken, someone who knows that those sexual appetites you have have a tendency to rule your life and you see the pain and the damage that it causes both inside you and outside you, do you know what the cross is? It is not your enemy. Then the cross is your friend because the cross is not condemnation or judgment or punishment for you. It's mercy, it's grace, it's love for you as Jesus bears the consequences of the consumption of human flesh that has wreaked havoc on the world and tormented people's inner lives. On the other side of the cross, after the pain and the suffering and the death in the bright and quiet, clear morning of resurrection, you find that Jesus has not only come to you for salvation, to rescue you from death and damnation. He has. He has come to you for that, but that's not all. Jesus has not only come to you for adoption, to bring you into the family of God. He has, but but that's not all. Jesus has also come to you in holy matrimony, in marriage, wooing us as a lover and pledging himself to us, body and soul, to be his bride. We belong, Christians are people who belong to God the way a husband and wife belong to each other. And so to be a Christian is to be someone who recognizes that their body and their appetites are no longer their own. They are spoken for by another. They are pledged to another. And so what I'd like to do is conclude this morning by just thinking about how this good news of the gospel in Jesus can be practiced in regard to our sexual appetite. Because we can talk about big ideas and soaring and lofty visions of the church being the bride of Christ here, but tomorrow is Monday and you got to wake up and you got to do something with your sexual appetite. So let's talk about how to practice the gospel in regard to your sexual appetite. What we're going to do is we're going to go back to the text in Philippians chapter three, and we're just going to look at some of the key verbs. Verbs are practice words, right? Things you do. Let's look at some of those key verbs and think about how through the gospel we can begin to put these into practice this week. Verb number one, forgetting. 
forgetting what lies behind. Your past does not define you. You are not held captive to past sexual shame. All adults in the room, if you think about it, if you're willing to let your mind go back in the past and go there, you have past sexual shame. Everybody does, but you're no longer defined by it. And baptism is the washing and cleansing of the past. For some of you, you need to claim your baptism, right? If you've already been baptized, you need to remember that you have been washed clean and you are not dirty anymore. And, and in the present, you likely might, might be formed pretty deeply by some ingrained neural pathways. You might need some people to hold you accountable to help rewire your brain to break your sexual addiction to dopamine, right? And you need some people to help you not backslide into old habits and practices, but you are forgetting what lies behind because you are baptized and you are clean. That's verb number one. Verb number two, straining forward, straining forward to what lies ahead. The resurrection of the body is your future. One day, all of your sexual appetite will be satisfied. Isn't that good news? One day, your sexual appetite will be fully and completely satisfied, not in some weird Islamic version of heaven where each man is given 70 versions, right? Islamic heaven is not great news for women, right? It's not. Baptism in a New Testament context signified two things. One, the washing and cleansing, but two, the preparing of a bride for her groom. And it means the same for you. Not only does baptism wash you clean, baptism also prepares you for the future marriage. All of us have this craving to want and to be wanted, to be enraptured in love. And that craving will be met when you meet your true lover, God himself. Forgetting what is behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. Third verb, imitating. You need a model for how to live. We need to help create some plausibility structures here. Married people need marriage mentors, older couples who can teach them that fidelity to each other is worth the sacrifice. Single people need single mentors who can help teach them that, listen, hang with me, that the single celibate life can be a joyful one. A joyful celibate life is like a contradiction in terms. It's an anathema in our current cultural moment. But there is something real here. And this is true, both for those who are heterosexually or homosexually attractive. Whether you experience same-sex or opposite-sex attraction, the single Christian life is to be one of joyful celibacy. And so you need to apprentice yourself to a joyfully celibate way of life modeled for you by somebody else. Everything feels impossible until you see somebody else do it. And then when you see somebody else live that way, something happens in your imagination and you go, oh, it's not impossible. It might even, I, this might actually be a path for me. I could actually live this way and actually be joyful and not miserable. Married and single people need each other so very much. Married people show single people in a healthy marriage a picture of the love and faithfulness that is meant to exist between Jesus and his church. When single people are around married folks, they catch a glimpse for what their life with God is meant to be like. And the opposite happens as well. Single people showed married people what, it's, what it means to be fully devoted to God in an undistracted way, without being distracted by other concerns. When married people are around single people, they catch a glimpse 
for what their lives are meant to be. Married people need single people in their lives to remind them that their little nuclear family is not the center of the universe, right? And single people need married folks. They need to be brought into families so they might practice and experience what it means to be part of the family of God. Forgetting what is behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, imitating, and then last one, and here we're, here we're just about done, waiting, waiting. No one will experience complete sexual fulfillment in this life, none of us, not married people, not single people, nobody. Every single one of us will spend our lives waiting in one form or another. And what sustains you while you wait? If baptism is the sacrament of cleansing and preparation for marriage, then the Eucharist, Holy Communion, is the sacrament of waiting. Bring your appetite. Bring your unmet sexual appetite to this table. I bet you didn't know you could do that. Bring your unmet sexual appetite to this table and receive God's love. And remember that this week, your sexual appetite does not define you. God defines you and you are not alone in your waiting. Look at all the other people coming to the table too. Guess what? They're frustrated too, but they're bringing their appetite to the table. And there they are met by God, just like you are. We wait together. Friends, Christ has made you his own. He is your true lover and your future is with him. His spirit is in you and with you now as you wait to meet your true love face to face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have given us our sexuality and our appetites. We confess to you that they are broken. We confess to you that we are tempted to find our identity in them. And Lord, we want to look to you and to realize that we are yours and not our own. Would you help us in the coming week in the good news of the gospel to practice our identity in you and to resist the temptation to practice our identity in our sexuality and in our sexual appetites. For this, we need your help, Holy Spirit. Would you please come to us? In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.